Bola boss, you freshly shorn Howardigans. Welcome to the Blind Boy Podcast. You might notice the sound is quite different this week. I'm trying to record this podcast in transit. I'm trying to record this in a hotel room right now. I've got multiple pillows and quilts over my head because the hotel room has got disgraceful acoustics. I thought that I was going to be back in Limerick this week, back in my studio where I could deliver you all a properly recorded podcast with the fidelity and sound that you're used to. But alas, this is not the case. Now you know I have a rule and that rule is I will never not put out a podcast. No matter what happens or where I am, I sound like I'm going to cry. <coughs> I'm just <laughs> I had something in my throat. I wasn't going to cry because I couldn't record a, a perfect Fidelity podcast. But you know I have a rule, and that rule is, no matter what the circumstances, a podcast will go out. So what I'm doing this week is, I have a magnificent conversation that... I had with a guest on this podcast a few months back and I'm going to put that out for you this week. I usually don't do two interview podcasts in a row. That's something I've never done before. Last week we had the magnificent Sharon Lambert, Dr. Sharon Lambert, speaking about trauma. There was wonderful feedback for that, by the way. I'm glad you all enjoyed that. Thank you to Sharon for coming on the podcast and it was a pleasure to give a platform to the shit that she was talking about not just give a platform but to give her the space and time that was necessary to speak about the important issues that she was speaking about that's kind of what I want to, what I want to do this week also I don't want to do a monologue podcast for you this week because like I said I'm hunched over in a hotel room with a quilt over my head and I don't think I could deliver a good quality full-scale monologue podcast in this situation so i'm going to give you a live podcast that i recorded in glasgow a few months back and the reason i'm choosing this as well is because of the news cycle this week with the death of the english queen if you live outside of fucking england that funeral is insanity on the one hand you have an old lady called elizabeth who died and her family are very upset but then on the other hand what you have is a, is a profoundly irrational and massive spectacle, which is not a funeral for an elderly woman, but a huge display of power for the British state and everything that represents. So I think it's appropriate for this week's podcast that the guest who I have on, who I'm going to speak to is a fellow called Darren McGarvey. And Darren McGarvey, who's also known as Loki, who's a rapper from Scotland, but Darren McGarvey is a social commentator, a very astute, compassionate, deeply intelligent person who communicates with a terrifying level of concise clarity. He can speak like people write. So I had a chat with Darren McGarvey a few months back. It was a live podcast in Glasgow, There was like 3,000 people in the audience. It was an amazing night. And it had everything that I want to achieve from a live podcast. And what I want from a live podcast is intimacy. My goal for a live podcast is 
even though there's a few thousand people in the audience, can myself and my guest create conversational intimacy that feels like it's just us in the room? And we did that. There was electricity in the room. You could have heard a fucking pin drop. We had a wonderful conversation about class structure, about art, about masculinity. At times it felt like a fucking therapy session. As well as being a rapper, Darren McGarvey, he's written two books. One of them is called Poverty Safari. He has a book out right now called The Social Distance Between Us. His writing has been compared to George Orwell. He just did a really successful Edinburgh tour at the Edinburgh Fringe of The Social Distance Between Us. And in the coming weeks he's going to be announcing a tour, which I think is all around the UK, of A Social Distance Between Us, which is his live show, spoken word show, about the book. You can find him on Twitter and on Instagram. I'll tag him on Instagram. But without further ado, here is the fantastic chat that I had with the brilliant Darren McGarvey. Are you alright there? I don't have to worry about you with the mic. You know how to use mics. Yeah, I'm good, man. I'm good. Yeah. That's, that's always a fear with guests is do they know how to use a mic or do they not? But you have emceeing experience and that's the best mic use possible. Yeah, the worst thing that you can do with me is, is pull out one of those headsets. Oh. I mean, that is just... I, I really lose all respect the minute that I get hit with a headset. Just give me an SM50 and let's fucking go. Do you know what I mean? Now, here's an... Inter- I get hit with headsets as well. Now, I have a beautiful excuse. I have a plastic bag on my head. You can't put a headset on my fucking face or... I won't sound like I'm talking. I will just literally sound like someone opening a packet of crisps. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah. But uh, any, I'm guessing now when you're doing like book events or you're moving away from the space of rap and into public speaking, they come out with these shitty little fucking headsets. I, I, Do you know who ruined them as well? H from Steps. It, one of many things you could argue he ruined. I... I have a lot of sympathy for H from Steps because his real name is Ian Watkins. Because, in fairness, poor old H from Steps, right? That's terrible to have that name. Second of all, I remember growing up, I don't know if you had this in Scotland, but if you, there used to be these like, uh, kind of like manholes on the ground, but they were for fire hydrants and they just had a giant H on them. Did you have them here? So we'd just walk past them going, H from Steps' grave. (laughs) And I just kept imagining these little miniature H's, just him consistently dying, like multitudes of him, quantum death, and just burying him all around Ireland. So there was that. That didn't help. I was never a huge fan of Steps' music. And then he ruined those things for me. It's like, why aren't you using a mic, H? It's the, it's the banality of evil, isn't it? Mm. And immediately you, f- you feel like you're in a musical. So when I announced that you were going to be my guest, um, people were thrilled. People were very, very happy. I got wonderful questions, but so many, loads of the questions are about class, right? How do you define if someone is middle class, we'll say here? What does that mean in the geographical island of, of Britain? Well, there are different ways of looking at it. 
the basic way is, is what is your relationship to the labour market, or as a Marxist would say, the means of production. So do you offer your labour in exchange for a, a, a wage that you, you live on, but have no real autonomy over the conditions of your job, mm -hmm. what the price of your job is, unless you're uh, part of a trade union? Shout out to Mick Lynch and the RMT. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, obviously, unless in, in in working class people are highly organised uh, and determined, then, then they, they, they won't come off well in that exchange. Middle class people, or middle, the middle classes, I mean, it's interesting because in, in the UK, um, there is this kind of denial of class as mm -hmm. a metric by which you can measure things. But also there is this deep commitment in terms of how we structure our economy that we maintain certain entrenched privileges for specific social classes. So when you talk about property, one of the, the advantages conferred on property owners is that they don't have to be politically active for mm -hmm. politicians to look after their interests. So we see that in Lancaster West Estate where Grenfell, the Grenfell fire happened. The people who lived in that tower were campaigning for years for better fire safety. Whereas the people who lived in Notting Hill and the surrounding areas, they didn't have to campaign for anything, but they were having the exterior of this building changed just so it was more pleasant for them to look at. Mm -hmm. And so that in itself is a kind of microcosm of the wider problem, which you can replicate that basic dynamic in education, criminal justice, culture, um, and on and on. And that's, that's, that's what a lot of my, my work has been concerned with. So <clears throat> your definition of, of class there was very much the Marxist definition. It's about where your money's coming from, your sense of autonomy. However, you would get people who come from middle-class parents, university educated, and they now find themselves working in a coffee shop, so effectively working a working-class job. But then these people, if they refer to themselves as working-class, you could have people who will say grew up in a council estate, who might say, no. So where does that come into it? Good question, and this is a very contentious issue because it's important not to have a kind of reductive view of what a working class or a middle class person is like. And most people resist that kind of categorization, even mm -hmm. working class people who you're often arguing in defense of will mm -hmm. say, no, I vote Tory because, 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 and you know, they can make quite compelling arguments sometimes. But when it comes to, to a situation like that, where you have an economy that's no, no longer even as valuable as it was for middle-class people, mm -hmm. and the cost of living crisis is beginning to strain, uh, place a strain on their incomes, the difference between a barista who is from a middle-class family and a, and a barista who's from a working-class family is that the barista from the middle-class family will have a certain margin of error, which means if they lose their job quickly, or they, they're involved in some kind of dispute in the workplace, or you know they develop an addiction, maybe they become a cokehead for a wee while, whatever it might be, their family can get around them, they can yeah. liquidate some assets, and they can provide the material and emotional resources required to mm -hmm. support a person like that. Whereas a working class kid who maybe comes from a single parent family with a dad in prison, um, they've probably already got the criminal justice system on their back. They've yeah. probably already had to, 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 to show their criminal record to an employer and go through that whole humiliating rigmarole. And then because their surplus labour is so available in the surrounding community, um, then it means that someone can sack them knowing that someone else can replace them straight away. So there's that inherent insecurity in every area of their life. And I would say that that's the big difference. Mm -hmm. 
and also too, the role of trauma, we'll say, within certain communities. Someone who comes from a neighborhood with high ownership or whatever is not going to witness or be a part of community trauma, community violence, and then the impacts that that has on their self-esteem, their mental health, and how they see themselves going forward. Absolutely, and then it's also important as well, I quite enjoy inverting sometimes the discussions around things like this because I, I, I'm as interested in looking at the trauma of the people who are, are going to the, the highest fee paying schools um, as well, and how this is expressed uh, through the, 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 the psychopathic disregard for human life that we yeah. see all across our society. Mm -hmm. um, and, 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 and so you, you, you have trauma at every level of society yeah. and then it's a case of how vulnerable are you to the material conditions around you. So what we see at the bottom of the food, the food chain is if someone you know, grows up in a, in a particularly troubled environment, you know, a what you would call a dysfunctional mm -hmm. environment, maybe an alcoholic parent, uh, they're already disadvantaged by their class position and that of their mm -hmm. parents in terms of their access to health services because of the inverse care law, which cut short basically means that there's a, there's a disproportionate relationship between where most health care is needed and where it actually is. So just, where just like education and property, middle class people get better quality health care and they get even more time with the doctor, they're often presenting with less complicated problems. So basically, a kid that's grown up in a poorer environment, they're dealing with health inequality, educational inequality, they're dealing with criminal justice inequality, they're dealing with cultural inequality, as in when they look at TV or they go out yeah. into the city centre, very rarely are they going to see someone who looks and sounds like them, unless it's uh, the Jeremy Kyle show or some other mm -hmm. idiotic depiction of, of a stereotype. And, and so really there, there are just so many different forces bearing down upon them that actually they, they, they may actually find some kind of solace in defining themselves by their trauma. They might think, well, this is my identity, you know? And so without the proper support to help somebody work through that, um, then, then a person can get caught up in addiction, which is often the, the solution that a lot of mm -hmm. people reach out for because they're dealing with, uh, they're dealing with a, 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 an acute and constant sense of dis-ease mm -hmm. um, about other people's intentions towards them, uh, constant exclusion, constant um, punitive action from institutions around them. I mean, people who are in the prison, their social exclusion begins in a classroom mm -hmm. in an educational environment that is not equipped to accommodate their diverse learning needs and emotional needs. And so really what this society does is, unfortunately, it makes life hard for those kids in the beginning and then continues to make it harder as they struggle. So as someone descends, it becomes harder and harder and it's a bit like being caught in a pool of quicksand. The best thing you can do to survive is stay completely still and then when you can stay completely still and don't do anything, the traumatised Etonians will point at you from the side of the pool and they'll say, you lack aspiration because look at you, you're not moving. You lack the aspiration to get up and go like me. A psychopath with lots of money. Yeah. Do you read... <laughs> Are you familiar with um, Dr. Gabor Mate? I am. I did an He's... event with him a couple of years back, yeah. And Because Gabor Mate, who'd be quite left-leaning uh, left in his views... Quite. Yeah. <laughs> he, he takes a trauma-informed view of society, and Gabor Mate too, if you ask Gabor Mate about 
you'd say to him, Boris Johnson, Donald Trump, he will refer to these men as highly traumatized individuals. Yeah. And he's speaking about their, the trauma of their privilege is expressed as normalized psychopathy, as you described. Has that helped you to arrive at that type of mindset? Yes, and also the fact that I have a recovery from alcohol and substance misuse that I need to manage on a daily basis. And one of the things that I need to watch out for is resentment and anger. Mm-hmm. Because as justified as these emotions can be, sometimes mm-hmm. when, I, when I'm not in, a, in that elevated state of consciousness, I can just become those emotions. And I can only sit in that discomfort for a few days before I start thinking, do you know what, I could get a, a box of Sopadine Max, a box of Nurofen Plus, take five out of each, and uh, watch the boys, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and then two weeks later, I'll be in rehab. So I need to kind of watch that. Now, obviously, being on the left, maybe not as far out in the left as, as, as some of my comrades, but uh, certainly on the left, uh, sometimes that's seen as a kind of weakness. You know, you're not emphasizing the dehumanizing language, the, the, the scum and all of this sort yeah. of stuff. And I, I, I recognize where that anger comes from, and I also commend anybody who is in an emotionally regulated place where they can live with that anger every day and express that anger every day, but I can't. So I have to take a more magnanimous approach, but in turn, through doing that... So that's compassion. You have to... It's radical compassion. Radical compassion. For you to speak about the trauma of an Etonian, that's a lot. That takes a lot. And that's quite an unpopular thing to say. But I appreciate where you're coming from. You're coming from the point of view of, I must... It's quite Buddhist. Mm. It's sending the love outwards as a way to understand because... Like, the reason I say it's Buddhist, there's this Buddhist parable I always fucking speak about, right, when it comes to the emotion of anger in particular, because anger is a cunt. Anger will really, really make you not want to... It, 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 anger will can... Anger can confuse you into thinking that you're doing something purposeful and it misdirects your purpose. Yeah. And there was these two Buddhist monks and they were walking along the road And the thing with these Buddhist monks is they were full-on fucking monks, so they had to live by rules. One of these rules is that they could not touch a woman. They could not physically touch a woman in any way. That was the fucking rules. So the two Buddhists are walking along, and there's a flood. And they see a woman, and she can't get over a, a flood river that's just developed. And she's there, and she has all her groceries with her and everything. So the Buddhist monks walk up and they say, what's the problem? She's like, I can't get across the river. So one of the Buddhist monks says, hop up onto my back and I'll take you across the river. So he does. She gets over to the other side. Everyone's happy. The two Buddhist monks continue walking on. The other one is silent, fucking furious. He says nothing for the rest of the journey. Really tense. So the fellow who carried the woman says to him, what's the problem? And the other fellow says, you fucking put her up onto your back. You know the fucking rules. You put, we can't touch women and you carried her. And he turns around and he says, I carried her for two seconds across that river. You've been carrying her for the past two two hours. Yeah, yeah, that's a a wonderful story. Isn't it? Because that's anger. Yeah, and that's a really... That's a very deep way of looking at it. And even, I think, some people will be operating at a certain frequency emotionally 
where they, they might not even understand the deeper meaning of that because they're yeah. not, not receptive to it in that moment. But I, I, I've, I've found uh, success in my personal life and I think that it's part of my nature, actually, to, to always be looking for the possibility of a reconciliation or the possibility of a deeper understanding. Um, and I think it's partly because of the environment I grew up in. You know, I, I don't talk about this a lot because it's Glasgow and I don't want to scandalise myself. Um, but I was raised in a Catholic family. Uh, we were all Celtic daft. My granny was the kind of Celtic fan who not only believed that every kick of the ball up the pitch was was a, a sporting advance, but also an ethical victory. Yeah. Do you know what and I mean? You have what we would call a big Irish head. Yes, yes. <laughs> he noted that uh, to me in the dressing yeah. room, and I did concur immediately. It's something that we use if we're if we're in a foreign country and we need directions. We can look into a crowd, and you see that big Irish head. <laughs> it's um, Dylan Moran once described it as a person who's just received two very important conflicting pieces of information. Yeah. Well, that kind of that links into what I'm saying because as much as I was raised in that environment, I also went to a non-denominational school where religion wasn't a big thing. And all my best friends were Rangers fans and all their families were brilliant working-class people who often kind of sought refuge in their homes when we were having tough times in mine. And so I never quite chimed with that analysis that you mm -hmm. often get with a lot of, of us on the, the green side of this situation, that stereotype of the Rangers fan. Yeah. It, didn't, it did not ring true with my experience, so I always resisted it. But I think in those early days, what that taught me was you can't really know a person's intentions or character or motives until you have had a face-to-face -face and got mm -hmm. a sense of them. You can speculate and you might be right some of the time, but when you're making big conclusions and thinking about society in terms of social classes and, and these big concepts, you always have to temper that with the humility that you're really having a guess at it and that you have to sometimes change the lens and look at it in a different way. And I find that that actually adds a kind of richness to a class analysis which is more emotionally intelligent perhaps than, than, than what many of us might have experienced before. And... In speaking there about uh, addiction struggles, you know, um, we know addiction in Ireland. Uh, I would say even in Ireland, addiction has become completely normalised. I didn't realise it this until, like I'd go to Spain to write and I got to this city, it's like 300,000 people and I slowly realised that like I'm the only drunk person in the whole city and I'm like, I'm not drunk, I'm just having seven pints. And then yeah. the Spanish people are going, why are you having seven pints? I've been drinking one pint for the past hour. And what I'm doing there is I'm abusing alcohol. Yeah. And I don't see that as abusing because my culture says that is not abusing. That's how you use well, alcohol. The alcohol industry says that is how you use alcohol and that of becomes course. the culture. Uh, obviously in Ireland, maybe you could make some exceptions, particularly as well in Scotland, but, but I always say that when we talk about our culture, um, our, our culture is, is, is shaped, and you've talked about this a lot with your mental health stuff and being susceptible to advertising messages and things but like that. Even this, man, and this is the fucked up thing about Guinness, because Guinness is the, the national drink of Ireland. Um, have you ever heard of the penal laws in Ireland? No. So around the 1600s, 
it would have been post Oliver Cromwell when we became fully colonised. So the penal laws were brought in, which were deeply sectarian, racist laws that meant an Irish Catholic could not get an education, could not own property, could not have a weapon, could not vote, couldn't own a horse. A systematic disenfranchisement of a population based on, they said religion, but what it really meant was native people of the land. At and the was that regardless of social possession or class? It was just, if you were Irish, if, if you were Irish Catholic, this, this is the fucking law. Right. So that's one of the things that... That was 200 years before the famine. That's what laid the foundations for the famine. When people go, Jesus, would you not have eaten a carrot instead? It's like, no, no, no. 200 years of people not having land education, anything meant that we relied upon one staple crop while everything was being exported. But... While you had this systemic racism disenfranchising a whole population, that's the same time that Guinness started as a company. And Guinness was, they were Protestant supremacists. These were very wealthy Protestants who, a Catholic could not work in Guinness up until the 1960s. That's the truth. They, like, Mr. Guinness, I can't think of his name, Arthur, hated Catholics. And I just find it ironic what I often compare it to is, if you look at the crack epidemic in America, crack cocaine was introduced to African-American communities at the exact same time that resources were being pulled from African-American communities. So the system created a, a perfect environment for addiction while the substance was coming in. Yeah. That happened in Ireland with Guinness, and I do think it's kind of fucked up that a pint of Guinness is like a little Catholic priest... You know, it has that collar. <laughs> That's when you know you've had drank a lot of Guinness. Yeah, but it is. We're, we're here drinking priests with this company that hated fucking Catholics with, that came from the fucking the penal laws. And where I'm getting at really is one of the reasons we have a very toxic drink culture in Ireland and how alcoholism is normalised, it's intergenerational trauma. Now, you can say epigenetic trauma, which is you literally inherit trauma through your, through your genes, and there's evidence for that, and they've looked at that, especially with Holocaust survivors. But for me, like, I've got terrible anxiety, and I'm only, like, three generations removed from people who lived in the famine. So do you find, like, as someone who's from Irish heritage, do you look at not only the trauma that you witnessed and grew up with, firsthand, but also trauma possibly passed down to you intergenerationally. Yes, yeah? absolutely. Um, my, both my parents, my mother, God rest her, um, her, her father was Irish. Mm -hmm. My paternal grandfather was Irish, and uh, they both came over um, for work in the, in the 1950s, mm -hmm. early 50s as did fucking most of Ireland. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and so um, I, 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 I was a kind of fruit of that labour further down the line in 1984. Um, and, and I remember my grandfather, he worked all his life. He was a plasterer um, and he, he liked to drink. He was the kind of Irish guy that says, uh, I'm going for a pint. 
And you know, there's no <laughs> such thing as a pint. No, 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 no. And and basically, you know, the, the older I got, the more I began to recognise uh, that he was disturbed. Mm -hmm. He was disturbed in some way by something. And I never got to the bottom of it, but it was always when he fell asleep in a drunken sleep. The things he would say in his drunken sleep were, were, were upsetting, you know. Mm -hmm. He would apologise. He would ask God for forgiveness mm -hmm. all the time in his sleep. And, and physically, he would be almost convulsing mm -hmm. uh, as he'd done it. And we all got kind of used to it, to the point where we're just like, oh, that's just old Tommy. But I remember very close to the end of his life, my grandmother passed away suddenly. She contracted a, a flesh-eating disease in hospital when she was being treated for something else. And really, he, 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 it was that point, you know, where we're talking backstage about when someone's getting palliative care and you yeah. know they're getting doped up with heroin. It was a bit like that with us when, when his drinking really just went off the deep end. It got to the point that we, we stopped saying, we're not going to the shop for you to get another bottle. We understood where things were yeah. going. And so it this was, was his medicine? This was his medicine. Yeah. And, and, you know, that, that was it. And I think he had a lot of regret and, and things as well. You know, I don't think a, a positive, romantic way of being a man was modelled to him. And so he might have had those impulses, but didn't know how to act on them a lot with my granny. And neither did she, to be honest. I mean, pretty tough life for them both, you know, in many ways, and tougher people generally back then. But I remember very close to the end of his life, he confided in us about uh, an incident that occurred in his childhood. Um, and I won't go too much into it, mm -hmm. uh, because uh, I don't know how he would feel about it. Of course. But yeah. I remember when he went back to his hometown, uh, with a family friend, um, he got up in the pub, uh, the local pub, and and he he gave the whole pub it straight about who it was that, in his words, ruined his life. Yeah. Um, and so trauma is absolutely uh, passed on, not just necessarily epigenetically as you describe, but also we learn how to manage our emotions and how we confront certain situations from what is modeled to us. Mm -hmm. And so if we adopt an emotional posture towards life, which is actually making it more complicated, you know, by being defensive, by, by adopting a certain attitude of distrust, then we might think instinctively that this is to protect us, but it cuts us off from mm -hmm. what we really need, which is the, the best medicine of all, which is full, authentic social connection with other people. And, a, and, a, and, a, and an honesty that brings a certain self-awareness and a sense of connectedness, which is a panacea for all of the health problems associated with poverty-induced trauma. But unfortunately, we, we, as you've noted many times, we, we, we medicalise that very quickly and we don't look at the next part post-medicalisation. So we've got a lot of people walking around who don't even realise that their whole mental outlook on life is a trauma response mm -hmm. and they self-medicate uh, because the society is plentiful in that regard in terms of you could just walk out of here or not even out of here and you, you can get something to kill the pain right now. Mm -hmm. um. These guys are lovely, they'll clap at anything. <laughs> I told you they'd be fucking sound. <laughs> um, yeah, it's interesting what you speak about there because one thing I remember growing up and one thing I definitely... I would have seen in, in my pals, right, and a, a very much a male thing, was the expectation of being hard, being a hard cunt, and having to be a hard cunt as a way to, with, within a male group, this is how you get value within that group. 
But if you're a hard cunt all the time, like I knew lads who, they might have been selling drugs, they might have been in, getting involved in, in gang stuff. They couldn't show laughter. They couldn't be seen to laugh at a joke. They couldn't dance. They couldn't do anything that would be seen as silly play. Yeah. The playfulness is an essential part of being human. To be authentic and to play in the moment. They fucking couldn't yeah. because they had to be hard. Yeah. And if they looked like they were laughing or dancing, they're going, someone's going to look at me and I look soft yeah. and I'll get my head kicked in. Yeah. And how they were disconnected completely from that part of themselves. And the lads I know who used to have to do that, a lot of them aren't here anymore. And the ones that are here are now in their 30s, deeply, deeply struggling yeah. with addiction. Yeah. And I, I remember them before puberty, having crack, having a bit of a laugh. And then as soon as you hit a teenager and you have to be hard, that just disconnected. Yeah, uh, I, I, I identify strongly with this. Um, and I'm afflicted by this to a certain extent. I've got as far as getting into music and... and but being creative is also weak. Yeah, no, no, that, that, was, that was where I had to stand my ground as a kid uh, and, and Pollock because anything that did not conform to the, 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 the pre-established parameters of behaviour uh, was mocked. It was mocked mm -hmm. out of fear. And it was pleased. mocked out of fear, but for me... Um, I stood my ground, I got into hip-hop, I, I found a way to channel that energy, but still I'm afflicted by it. Um, you know, so th th there's been occasions where I've, I've, I've got myself into conflicts of mm -hmm. some description or another because I understand the, the, the game theory mm -hmm. of, of, of those male dynamics and I understand that 90% uh, of fighting is, is sounding like mm -hmm. you'll go ahead with it. And, uh, and, and sometimes that... Uh, backfires on you mm -hmm. um, sometimes it doesn't but I always feel regret after it mm -hmm. I always feel e even in a fight that you win I always go away just feeling like I've beat myself up anyway mm -hmm. but even now there are still aspects where I'm afflicted by that mm -hmm. toxic masculinity and I, I think that's the correct term in this context to use because I deny myself a, an awful lot of joy in life yeah. I can't even sing in the shower and, and that sounds funny and right that sounds funny but I can't I can't even sing in the shower because there's something about it that is so embarrassing to me. Yeah. And it's because it's gentle and it's because it's being free and there's something about me that's still not let go of that wee boy then who, who, who had to behave in a certain kind of and way. this was policed usually with homophobic language. Yeah. And... This is what yeah, I want to... Re reading in academic, that was always seen as gay. Gay, And inverted yeah. commas for anyone listening around the world. Absolutely. <laughs> Just going to pause the interview right there so I can do a quick ocarina pause. Again, apologies to everybody for the chaotic nature of these little recordings between the interview. I am recording this in a hotel room underneath a quilt. I don't have anything to do an ocarina pause with this. I've got a vape. I'm going to vape a little bit. And when I vape... You're going to hear an advert for something, right? I can vape in stereo with this particular mic I have. Actually, it's a stereo mic. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and t shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Bit of ASMR. There you go, left to right ASMR, you greedy cunts. He's vaping into the microphone while you listen to advertisements. Alright, support for this podcast comes from you, the listener, via the Patreon page. I'm also whispering because it's two in the fucking morning, alright? Support for this podcast comes from you, the listener, via the Patreon page. Patreon.com forward slash the blind boy podcast. This podcast is my full time job. This is how I earn a living. This is how I pay my bills. I adore doing this work. I adore doing this work and I respect this work so much that I won't allow anything get in the way of me even putting out a podcast. I'll figure out a way to do it no matter what my circumstances. But if this podcast brings you joy, solace, entertainment, laughter, intrigue, whatever the fuck, please consider paying me for that work. All I'm looking for is the price of a pint or a cup of coffee once a month. That's it. If you met me in real life, would you buy me a pint? Well, you can via the Patreon page. But if you can't afford that, if you can't afford to be a patron of this podcast, don't worry about it. You can listen for free because the person who is a patron is paying for you to listen for free. Everybody gets a podcast. I get to earn a living. Just some live podcasts coming up. I'm going to be in Vicar Street on November 1st. That's almost sold out. We're down to the last few tickets. I'm unsure whether I'll add another date. I might do if the demand is there. Also, on the 31st, Halloween night, I'm doing a live podcast at the Polka Festival up in fucking County Meath. Go to pokerfestival.com. I probably have another gig that I'm supposed to promote. But alas, I'm underneath the Continental Quilt in a fucking hotel room with no phone or laptop. And I don't, I can't remember any other gigs. Alright? So, lay off, promoters. Um, nothing else to talk about. Let's go back to that wonderful interview with the fantastic Darren McGarvey. Because that's the other thing too, with notoriety... Having approval from people can be very, very dangerous. Mm. That can be a very dangerous thing, and it can keep you, it can remove you from, from your fucking art. Because the thing is, to make a piece of good writing or a piece of good art, it's a dialogue with yourself. You have to make it for yourself, and if you do that properly, it will communicate with other people. But as soon as you start thinking about an audience, what will they like? Yeah. And as soon as you start, for me, I can't allow myself to get a buzz from 
positive praise because if I allow myself to get a buzz from positive praise, I will focus very much on any negativity. Yeah. And the struggle for me all the time is how do I just keep it about myself? If I do a podcast, if I write a book, it, it's only successful because I'm doing this for me. Mm. And then if I do that, it will communicate effectively. What's your relationship with, with praise? Wow. Because um, you get a lot of it, man. I don't, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, I'm trying to learn. I'm, I'm trying to learn that it's okay for me to uh, think of myself as a, a, a generally good person who generally has decent motives most of the time. Um, but there is also that shadow self, do you know mm -hmm. what I mean, that I've over-identified with over the years. That everyone has. Yeah, and, and, and so part of my recovery has been about learning to separate the two and, and embrace the two. And, and, and for me, here's an example, right? Second book comes out, right? And I'm not saying this, I hope people understand, I mean this genuinely, it doesn't, it, if you don't understand how genuine I mean it, that's fine, I can't change how you think, right? But this is the second time my work has been compared to George Orwell's work, Yeah. right? And that is intensely surreal, because that praise is not dished out often, mm -hmm. but it's also surreal to be that person, mm -hmm. right? So you think, what have I to make of this? I didn't go to eating. I didn't have that, that kind of uh, privileged heritage. I mean, he took the name George Orwell to purge that, survive, that guilt he had from, from, that, from that background. And then you can start looking into it and going, is this a, is this a comparison? What, how does that, what does that mean about me? And then you realize, no, 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 mm -hmm. no, 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 get that away from me. I'm happy for people to say that if that's their frame of reference, right? Perhaps that speaks volumes of the dearth of writing on social inequality in Britain, that you have to go back to a guy who had his heyday in the 30s to find a comparison with somebody who was born in the 80s. I'm happy that people say those nice things, but I, I, it's better that other people say them and I don't start saying them about myself. Yeah. And so it's getting that relationship really with understanding, look, I'm delivering the goods, what do the readers think? What do the readers feel? And do you know what? If I go with that barometer, that's much more grounded in reality. So I get people coming up, they tell me, I went to university off the back of reading your book. I became a nurse off the back of reading your book. Do you know what, man? That's a buzz for me. Yeah. That is a big buzz for me because like, I'm all about class politics and I'm all about radical reform of society, but I'm all about fucking grab the bull by the horns in this society if you want and fucking make the most of what is around you. Don't just wait for the revolution. You know, like, just get out there and do your thing and, and forget anybody who's, who's trying to bring you down because of the way you speak or the way you sound. You got millions of people in Britain who don't realize that they are bending over backwards to speak properly, to accommodate the inferior communication skills of privately educated millionaires. <laughs> There you fucking go. <laughs> um, <clears throat> there's kind of parallels between our two careers in the sense that like, we both started off with hip-hop and then we developed more into kind of social commentary. For me, it was the difficulty of horse outside to then speaking with sincerity about mental health 
and doing it from a perspective of like, I know I'm silly, but I can speak about this thing in a serious way, even though I'm still being silly. And I'm assuming with yourself, even though your lyrical content was quite serious and your message was present in your lyrics, when you're a rapper, they don't take you seriously. Yeah. You know? Yeah. How did you find that transition to going, I'm not rapping now, I'm speaking, and what I'm saying is worth listening to? See, I just refused to accept those terms in the beginning. So I don't accept. Uh, it begins with me saying, I don't accept that you don't accept this. And so let's see who budges first. Yeah. And, and you know, I'm kind of stubborn that way. And really what it came down to was the consistency across all of the work that I've done, because I'm a qualified community practitioner. And you I'm studied journalism as well. qualified journalist, yeah. broadcaster, writer, and, and hip-hop artist or rapper. And, and the consistency between all of that is that I always have a, the same message to carry. Mm -hmm. It's about, it's about uh, making people who haven't experienced the stuff that I and many people around me have experienced understand something of that experience. And through all these different mediums, you can speak to different audiences and different demographics. So with, with, with my hip-hop audience, I have possibly the most intimate relationship with mm -hmm. them. So that's, that's why, and you, you, you understand this as well, that's why like, if you went back and listened to my early work, I'm very unguarded in how I spoke. And we lived in a different time where there were different, it was a different lexicon, different subject matter was mm -hmm. in the air. So if I go back and I was to listen to some of that stuff, then I, I would think, well, I wouldn't talk about that subject in that way now. Mm -hmm. um, or I wouldn't talk about it in that way in this kind of context. Mm -hmm. um, but the, the, the hip-hop audience, they, they've, they've, they've got a lot of, uh, and you'll probably know this as well from your own experience, they really, they really kind of, they're watching me and they, they feel like I'm still representing them. And that's, that's, that's good because I know, like, if this all... If the cultural Gestapo just bust through the door right now and just went like, McGarvey, it's over. The Orwell thing was a fucking joke. Your writing is pish. You're the Richard Madeley of social commentary. <laughs> right? If they came in and done that, do you know what? The hip-hop community would be there and they would be like, right, like, what's happening? Let's make some music. And so there's a certain kind of comfort that comes going through, exploring all these other avenues, and a confidence that comes where you can look the culture in the angle. I don't care if you think this is ridiculous. Mm -hmm. I'm gonna turn that up until you start to listen to what I'm actually saying. And, and part of that confidence comes from knowing that in the Scottish wider hip hop landscape, then um, you know I'm, 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 I regard it with a lot of affection and, and, and I think I'm regarded with a lot of affection as well. Fair fucking play to you, man. Um, I need your, your, your thing as well, you're, you're being kind of ungenerous about your own work as well. I know what you mean. Yeah, like I've difficulty saying the word qualified. Like, I, like for me, where it comes from is I recently found out I was autistic. So I spent my entire life being told that I was a stupid cunt in school. Mm. I had a terrible time in school. I failed school. I was really branded as bad from a young age. And it's hard... Like, this is what it feels like for me. Like, when I, I, my, new, my thing now is, is, is writing and short stories, which means I'm trying to be accepted by the literature community. 
And a lot of these people who gatekeep the liter literature or even podcasts or any type of serious discourse, when I was a kid, I was smart. However, I was bad and I was put into these classes and I was misbehaving. I really, really wanted to speak to the smart kids. I wanted to go up to those classes in school that I wasn't allowed to, and I wanted to speak to them about the things they were interested in. Mm. And they had a certain way of bullying me. It wasn't physical, it was a look or a sneering comment, and it hurt me deeply. Yeah. And now as an adult, the same people that are gatekeeping literature, gatekeeping discourse, they use that same language. So when I get a shitty comment from them, like, I get right-wingers attacking me the whole time. Right-wingers just going, you're a stupid prick with a bag in his head. I don't give a fuck. Water off a duck's back. Mm. But if it's someone who's very well-educated, very well-read, and they give a shitty comment to me, I'm right back to being a child, and it hurts. Yeah. yeah. And I have to learn to try and take ownership of that and be able to say, like you're saying, I'm qualified, I've done things, I'm allowed, I, I've earned my position to be here, to write, to do what I want, but I have a lot of trauma to get over. Yeah, um, well, I mean, I, I'm, feeling, I'm feeling it for you as you're sharing that, you know what I mean? I'm feeling that, and uh, I, I, I don't identify with the, the, the additional learning needs aspect of it. It was, it, was, it was ADD I got diagnosed with. It's similar stuff. I, I got diagnosed by Gabor, Ma Gabor Mate. Fuck off. That's my claim of fame. Fuck off. Gabor Mate, 10 minutes in a dressing room with me, and he just took me outside, and he says, I hope you don't mind, <laughs> but I'm diagnosing you with attention Fuck deficit disorder. Off. But that's better than that. That's, that's like, uh, in our language, that's like a knighthood, except not from a prick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Gabor Mate fucking diagnosing you with ADD. I know. It was, it was, he's, he's also been quite open about his own experiences. But to kind of go back to what you're saying, because I think it's an important point, and I think it's good, that it's, it's good to hear someone being that kind of vulnerable and talking about that openly and seeing that you are, you are kind of you are damaged by that sort mm -hmm. of stuff, and that's not your fault. The thing that, that, that I developed was a contempt for people who treated me like that. Mm -hmm. So it did affect see, me. I want their approval. Yeah, see, it did affect me, but it also made me focused. So the weird thing about me is, I don't know if it's the ADD or if it's growing up in a kind of occasionally hostile kind of terrain, uh, but I, I experience what I can only describe as perfect concentration when I'm in a conflict with someone. That's why I'm effective as a battle rapper, it's why I'm effective oh. as an MC, as a, as why I'm effective in the heat of a moment, a heated exchange. It's why I'm quite handy in a debate on TV. Um, you don't get emotional. I get emotional, but it's like a blackout. It's like a blackout. See when you get a blackout from drinking? Mm -hmm. I get a blackout and a conflict where I, I sort of, I just kind of go, no, this is not going to happen the way you want it to happen. And then something else takes over. I kind of am just sort of there, sitting, watching it. And then I come back in once it's over. And it's weird because it's a sort of trauma response almost. There's a disassociation. There's another part of me or my ego that handles the conflict and then returns 
me back to, to, to sort of deal with the aftermath of it. But a lot of people, when they find themselves in a conflict situation, will freeze and then they lose the, their cognitive brain and then they can't argue. And then afterwards, they're driving home in the car furiously angry about what they should have said. Yeah, but the thing is, the, the, the people always regret what they didn't say, but it's far better than regretting what you did say because I'm not proud of some of the <coughs> dressing downs that I've dished out over the years, to be honest. Um, one, of my, my, one of my worst defects as a person, it's less now because I understand the damage, but I could be very, very cruel with my words, you know, mm -hmm. and really feel justified, uh, seeing it as a retaliatory strike almost, but realizing that I've cut someone down so harshly. So there is an element of emotional hijack because so in that moment, you're not fully using your compassion. You're not thinking about how do my words affect this other person? Yeah, and, 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 yeah. and, and now I have more control over that now. I still black out, but I, I, I black out in a way that I can reach for facts and phrases and ways of distilling a complex idea simply for an audience in a debate scenario or mm -hmm. something like that. But, but also, um, I, 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 I mean, I, I've shared this before in my book, but when I was a kid, my mum and dad had two, two totally different natures, you know? So my dad was a diplomat, you know? I mean, he, if it was a problem, he would be the person that would be trying to negotiate with other parents and talk to them and all that. My mother had a completely different view, and one which is born of those social conditions she grew up in, which is, don't let anyone see that you're frightened. Mm -hmm. Don't let anyone see that, you're, you, you, that they can get one up on you because the minute that you do that, then they're just going to take advantage of that. And so I remember, you know, there were times I was coming home, and this is just maternal love and, and expressed in a way that some people might find shocking. But if I came in the door and I'd had a run-in with somebody and came off worse for it, I was marched back out that door. You know what I mean? And I was, there's times I had to fight in the street and all that. Mm -hmm. um, because she, she would not accept uh, me returning home and bringing any kind of shame uh, on, on, on the name of the family. Mm -hmm. Obviously quite ironic because she was a quite a chaotic drinker at times, do you know what I mean? <laughs> but she, it was her, that was her expressing her love in its purest form. It was just a kind of, it was a slightly, uh, it was slightly deformed kind of love, but it was love nonetheless. And so I think that I, I still carry that. I carry that kind of, nah, you're not going to get the last word, not with me. I don't care what your qualifications are and I don't care how badly you want to win because there's just, for me, it's like a spider sense. And I know one day if I overstep a line, I'll receive retribution and my ego will be whittled back down to a more manageable size and I'm comfortable with that as well. But this is an aspect of my nature that sometimes I don't have any control over so I can't even really take any credit for it. It just seems to be part of who I am. It's interesting, man, because <clears throat> so I had the exact opposite in that when I was a kid, I'd frequently find myself getting in trouble with adults. I would speak to adults in a way that you're not supposed to speak to adults, and I frequently found myself getting physically beaten by adults. And I would return home, and an adult has just kicked the shit out of me. Like, I remember I went up to this woman and her child in a playground, and I said that one day the sun was going to expand and consume the entire universe. I was six. <laughs> this was one of the things that got me my autism diagnosis, but <clears throat> I just thought it was a lovely fact. But it, the kid started crying. The mother didn't like that the kid was crying, and the mother beat me the way you'd beat an adult, and I was six. And when I went home, and this would happen frequently, 
my parents kind of went, you did something bad and you probably deserved it. Yeah. So I didn't get told, go back out there, or I didn't get told, we need to find this adult and have him fucking arrested or whatever because they beat a child. Consistently, I found out my childhood, the message was, because like my parents had their own shit going on and they tended to believe teachers and believe positions of authority. So if they say that your child is bad, then your child must be bad. So I didn't get that support at home. It was, you deserve that beating yeah. and you now need to hide. Yeah. And that hasn't stuck to me as yeah. a fighting spirit. Yeah. So that's why when I get taken down by people who I want the approval of, I internalize it as, so I can't say I'm professional, I deserve to be here. I need to work on that. What is it that you hope that they would say? Like in, a, in an ideal scenario. And that's bullshit. I, why do I want their fucking approval? Yeah, but, but even imagine, imagine someone's, because what I'm trying to get to is, could you even internalize the approval if it was given no. freely? So there's no. the thing. So then you see the futility in looking for it because it's Absolutely. just a cycle of mm -hmm. self-hatred. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So fuck them, you know? Like, yeah. not, not even in a bad way. It's just, it's, 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 like, it's, like, it's like repeatedly punching yourself in the face in a certain kind of way. But yeah. it's, it's weird because if we did punch ourselves in the face, which I have done a few times, um, it, we would kind of quickly go, oh, hey, this is too painful. But we seem to we seem to give us a certain kind of continuity about revisiting the same pain and mm -hmm. living in the same shame. And the thing with shame is, you cannot if you if you live in a shame state for too long, it becomes so corrosive that that it just self-replicates. So then there's all the things that you do to numb the shame. It's okay. I think a certain level of shame is appropriate in certain scenarios and in our culture. It's an important force to regiment behavior and it mediates us, yeah. social norms and all of these things. So, you know, if I, if I lost the rag with my son, which I have never, I've never physically struck him, but I felt like it sometimes. And uh, if I ever physically did strike him, I would experience a certain level of shame the minute that the mist of anger dissipated. And I would experience that shame at an appropriate level because that would create a, a disincentive to behave that way again. But if I drank on that shame, yeah. then I, I'm not getting any insight into its true meaning. I'm numbing it. So it's not getting processed properly. So our, our, basically, our body is part, partly just this kind of big biochemical emotional processor. So when we numb stuff, it doesn't get that relief, that release that we're supposed to get. So it's just sort of, we, we, we make it worse. But I, 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 I think um, it's mad because you're very successful and you're it's successful in a way that models to people like me what is possible. So like in Glasgow in Scotland, I'm seen as successful, but you're you're like you're a, you're a big successful name in the, every single area that you've applied yourself, and it's weird because even when you're talking about your music, you're kind of you're you're being ungenerous in a self-deprecating funny way, but at the same time, we understood your music uh, and the music that you made. We understood that to be knowing, very knowing in its quality, and it had a satirical quality and and a knowing quality that that something similar in aesthetic could be done by somebody else and possess no such intrinsic value. So even the stuff where you're kind of fucking about, you know what I mean? That's all part of your integrity as an artist. That's all part of your intelligence. And uh, unfortunately, no, you, you could record this and play that, what I've just said, back to you over and over again. And in, until, until you just stop fighting that negative voice, then 100%. this won't matter. No, you're dead right. Um, 
I mean, what I say, what I do, or like, I just try and have the self-compassion to go, look, I'm not fucking perfect and I'm on a journey. Mm. And what I, what I can't do is beat myself up over it, but understand this is an issue I have and this is something I need to consistently try and work on. Yeah. And compassion is the only key. Compassion, I know too, for me, I know that I have to have compassion for the people whose approval I want. Mm. As opposed to uh, thinking, this person is above me. Because I know... Anytime I feel that way, I'm just six years of age again, or I'm, I'm 15 and I'm back in school, and what I'm experiencing are the desires of a child that are no longer relevant to me as an autonomous adult. Yeah. And that's the thing with a lot of trauma. You're going back to, like, I think that child needed that approval because a, children do actually need external approval, mm. legitimately, because your brain isn't developed. Adults don't need external approval. We need internal approval from ourselves and then a very small amount of people that we love. Yeah. But it's weird because the approval's there. It's just that you're looking... Oh, I can't see it. Like, I, the I, I, have the, uh, I put the lights down dark because I don't want to <laughs> see. Like, like at the start of the gig, remember I took a photograph of all of you. Like that was for me. That was for me tonight to go, a lot of people have turned up in Glasgow to come to my gig. I wouldn't have believed that 10 years ago and I kind of don't believe it now. And it was for me to go, it's okay to do yeah. this, you know? Yeah, and the thing, absolutely. The thing, that, the, the thing I was hoping to get the chance to kind of convey to you also was that, uh, that there's a lot of people operating just now in our culture, figures, public figures, entertainment figures who, you know, they rely on, um, and sometimes I have myself, you know, they rely on a network of, 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 of highly networked publicists and mainstream media contacts to put a light on what they're doing. But I think that you've created something that's very much self-generating. Yeah. And that's, that, is the, that is the goal. Like, what you've achieved, that's the kind of holy grail for, for uh, a lot of creators uh, generally, you know. So, so never underestimate that, because what, what you've done, and your team are all great, you know what I mean, all, all of you. What you've, what you've achieved is real freedom within a highly commodified culture that's trying to get you to be one thing. And you're sitting here with a polythene bag over your head, <laughs> talking about looking for the approval of this that, and the next thing, which is just something that you couldn't pitch to a BBC producer. You know what I mean? Like, well, I've got this idea. <laughs> Actually, did fucking love that, wouldn't it? Um, on the subject of conflict and managing conflict well, something beautiful has happened on the geographical island of Britain the past week and also in Ireland and this is the figure of Mick Lynch yeah um, I'd never heard of Mick Lynch I love the fact that he said that his hero is James Connolly that's fucking fantastic but Mick Lynch He's kind of doing what you expect, we'll say, traditionally the Labour Party to do. You, I don't give a, Mick Lynch could be talking about a pot of tea. I don't give a fuck. The way that he speaks, the way that he... It's emotional congruence. What Mick Lynch believes and what comes out of his mouth are one, and I can connect with that. Yes. And it's so fucking inspiring. Yes. What do you think of, of Mick Lynch? And he gives me a bit of hope. Yep. He feels like hope. Yeah, I mean, obviously, um, he 
he's been elected by the members of that union to, to, to do the job that he is doing and, and now they're engaged in an industrial dispute and he's really rising to the occasion. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting because a lot of people um, on the left, we don't really like the idea that, that, that our, our, our kind of uh, figures are in any way kind of media savvy or yeah. polished in any way. But the truth is, um, there's a lot to learn from someone like Mick Lynch. And the reason you're absolutely correct in your analysis of the emotional congruence, there's this perfect harmony between his experience, his depth of knowledge, his being across his brief, his understanding of democracy, the corporate sector, and industrial relations generally. He really deeply understands the imbalance that's inherent to the British economic structure. And, and so he doesn't have to think when he's answering questions. Because he's not lying. No, exactly. And, and so then that creates an authenticity. Yes. That creates an authenticity which in our very sterile, performative media environment yes. is just transfixing. Now this is, uh, 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 this is part- But it also does, and this is what I love about him. <clears throat> the media pundits lie to us all the time, but it becomes so normalized that you can switch off and not see it as lies. Yeah. When, when, like, when Richard Madeley was talking to Mick Lynch, you just knew Richard Madeley was lying. Yeah. You just knew, and anyone Mick Lynch talks to, you can see their fuck. It's like their mouth moves at a different speed to their face. Oh, no, no. You're lying, and I can tell because this man isn't. Yeah. No, that's amazing. Is, this is also why, and I argue this in my book, um, hopefully persuasively. This is also actually. What's the name of your new book that you have out right now? Uh, the new book is called The Social Distance Between Us. And actually, you guys, if you go to any Waterstones in Glasgow before the end of June, you'll get a discount by presenting tonight's ticket stub at the counter. So uh, do, do, do that before the end of June. Um, but I argue in the book when trying to understand populism and Brexit and all of that, the reason that people like Nigel Farage and Tommy Robinson became so transfixing for many people is because they're kind of authentic to themselves as well, except they're cunts. Yeah. 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 And so, and so. Like I believe them. Yeah, so it's like, oh no, you really are that racist, or you really do believe that. And the thing is, what they do is, the thing with, with Mick is he's just laying it on the line because that's his job, whereas the other characters, they're a wee bit craftier on how they go about it. What they do is they begin from a place of understanding what is annoying everyone and what is upsetting everyone, the strain of class inequality and all of these different things. And so they say things that basically everyone accepts is true, which society is run by elites who are running it in their interest and they don't give a fuck about you. And because someone actually says that on a national TV show, millions of working class people just go, huh? That's how I feel. And then they go, I'll watch him again. And over a time, they end up in this far-right pipeline where it begins with very innocuous observations that anybody in the political spectrum would acknowledge is true. And then you start getting into the immigration stuff. And then you start getting into the Islamophobic stuff. And then you start getting into the other stuff. And then you start realizing a person has been kind of graduated along that process where mm -hmm. something would have shocked them if Tommy Robinson had said that in the first instance. Mm -hmm. There have been gradually acclimated to mm -hmm. that level and so suddenly they're so endeared to that person that they actually protect them for all the cunty things that they say. Mm -hmm. And uh, with Mick Lynch, I think what we're seeing is the exact perfect kind of specimen mm -hmm. of the kind of working class figure that you need in a culture who really understands what they're doing, is very intelligent, but is not a prick. And, and is really, 
understands what he's all about and is very, very sincere in how he speaks. And, and that, I think, I mean, even the spectator was commending him. That's how affecting yeah. that this guy is. Now, whether they come after him uh, for this, that, and the third, or the James Connolly stuff, I don't know. But I think a lot of them will think twice before they do because he has such a strength of public opinion behind him that newspaper editors will be weighing up, are our readers going to support us going after this guy? Because this guy actually is pretty fucking popular. And... <clears throat> The example you gave there too, <clears throat> when you spoke about, we'll say, uh, Tommy Robinson or Farage, right? They were effective because I'm a cunt and I'm telling you this about myself and they're actually being congruent with their badness. Yeah. Do you know who else does that? Jordan Peterson. Yeah. Seriously, <clears throat> because with Jordan Peterson, what you get is we have a, a society in the US, in the island of Britain, in Ireland, where mental health services are in shit. People are looking for someone who can describe to them human emotions, yeah. to speak about human emotions. Jordan Peterson does that well. He's a qualified psychologist. About 30% of what Jordan Peterson speaks about is very sound psychotherapy. So people latch onto that and they go, wow, He's after describing to me this feeling called shame, this feeling called anger, this feeling called anxiety. Nobody has done this for me. Mm. Then you go down the rabbit hole and it's all women's fault. Yeah. Or it's trans people. Yeah. And it's the same shit. He is congruent up until a point. But you listen to Gabor Mate speak about... Like, here, he, like here's the thing with Jordan Peterson. He speaks very well about mental health. But it's never, he never uses the term love, compassion, or taking ownership. Mm. He has removed compassion and love from the conversation about mental health. You fucking can't. Yeah. You have to have love for yourself and you have to have other people. And if that's not present, you're not going to heal. Yeah. Otherwise, you're blaming people. Yeah. And it's temporary. Yeah. No, I, 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 I'm grateful to hear that kind of nuanced analysis of it because that, that, that's, that's pretty much how I feel about Peterson as well. And uh, he, he, he's an interesting case um, because he, he, there's this video footage of him that you'll find, no doubt, if you, no matter what it is you put YouTube on to fall asleep to, you wake up to a Jordan Peterson yeah. video. <laughs> yeah. that, the algorithm is pretty insistent on yeah. it. But um, you know what that is? Because you're a man of a certain age. Yeah. That's all it is. Yeah. 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 And so basically, he 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 has this uh, he has this way of talking about working class men, right? And, and 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 the context of it, what he's doing is he's he's pushing back against this idea of toxic masculinity, which I agree when it's applied clumsily creates the wrong message. Sometimes you get guys who don't really they're not even thinking in those terms. They just think they're being called toxic. Right, so there might be sometimes in some instances, not that we should always be framing discussions about men to suit men, mm -hmm. but in the discussions, in the uh, uh, context where it is appropriate, we should make, be more careful and sensitive. Right, but anyway, that's, that's the context of his very rousing speech, basically, where he's talking about saying that men are this and the men are that. Nothing in this society happens without working class men. Nothing happens, not a light bulb, not a down. They're down the pits, they're climbing up, they do, they do the jobs, they go and they fight the wars, they do all the things and all that. And it's very rousing, almost kind of working class hero rhetoric. But he always stops short of, so let's fucking pay them well. That's yeah. the problem. 
he wants them to be held up and celebrated yeah. as a beacon of masculinity. But when you start getting into capitalism, he fucking goes Absolutely. completely silent. And so he doesn't care about them enough to guarantee, you know, to, to argue that, that, that maybe their employers should pay them more and treat them more fairly, which I think is really the actual key to a good life as well as all the taking and personal responsibility. He collects, he collects Soviet art to laugh at it. So, seriously, so he collects Soviet art, which was all about unifying workers. Um, Soviet art was based on Marxist principles. He views Marxism as the most dangerous thing possible, as if you let any amount of Marxism into thought, what it leads to is violent revolution. So, which, I like, I like the revolution bit, but he hates that yeah. so he will always stop short of anything that critiques capitalism yeah. every time yeah and also he he believes capitalism to be perfect darwinism oh yeah he's and and actually you know sometimes i'll find myself I'm, i mean i don't i don't necessarily like talking about class or being engaged in all these debates i wish actually i could look out into society and find evidence you know there's not as much to worry about as i thought mm -hmm. sometimes i go looking for that I think, well, maybe I've got this wrong. Let me read about Steven Pinker. He says this is the best time to be alive. But my friend just committed suicide a few days ago, and my other friend is thinking about committing suicide, and I've got friends and family all around me and all sorts of chaos. But let me just read some Steven Pinker. You know what I mean? And, and so the thing is, they're always... And Steven Pinker makes us complacent. They're always making the critique from a specific vantage point where they're not actually exposed to the harsher conditions. So they can take that objective scientific approach, but there is also something that occurs when you are immersed in the, in the front line where the inequality is really sharp. And that also informs your whole outlook. And this is the problem that I also argue in the book about proximity. There's a distance between the people who frame what society is about and the people who are actually struggling the most. But Peterson, he, he is, he, I've, I can't deny it, I've, I've seen people who off the back of reading his books have sorted their lives out. Mm -hmm. And so in a sense, there is some value to some of the things that he says. But then that's a difficult line to broach in a society where because of some of the other things he said, everything else he said is automatically discounted. And so I guess I'm in a place where if you can find something of value in that for yourself, then fine. Who am I to judge? But for what me, I would prefer, though, mm. is if instead of it being someone like Jordan Peterson that they're listening to, that it's someone like Gabor Mate, yeah, who has a, a, an almost identical message, yeah. but with compassion and yeah. love. Yeah, and Gabor's analysis of Peterson is is a fellow Canadian. Yeah. Is 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 I don't know if you guys have seen Gabor talk about it, but he talks first of all. He focuses on Peterson's voice box. He says his register is very high. He's always yeah. up here somewhere. Yeah. And he says that that's because of the stress placed in his voice box. Yeah. He says that that is a manifestation of, of Peterson who contains so much rage. Mm -hmm. And that he actually, he's driven by a lot of rage that he's very skillfully able to conceal because he understands psychology and how other people interpret things. But underneath that, there's an unresolved trauma within him, whatever it might be. And it's fascinating to hear Gabor talking about that. And interestingly... <clears throat> Peterson has tried to performatively use rage recently. In the past two years or so, he'll find himself getting angry. But when Jordan Peterson gets angry, it's met with laughter. Well, he's the guy that claps when the plane lands, isn't he? Yeah. <laughs> but his anger 
he's, he's performing anger now. Aye. He doesn't have congruent anger. When he's angry, he's trying to be an angry person, but it's not a genuine thing. You don't believe it. Yeah. Because, and two, Gabber would say that Peterson is a traumatized individual, and Jordan Peterson had desperate addiction struggles the past two years. Yeah. He got hugely addicted to prescription medicine, ended up having to do this crazy therapy in Russia. We don't know what happened, but he disappeared for two years. But you know yourself, people don't get, people don't struggle with severe addiction unless they have unowned trauma, unless there's something there. They're self-medicating for something that they're not taking ownership of. And yeah. Peterson is not taking ownership of a shitload of stuff. And his anger is the thing that's keeping him from it. Yeah. It's, it's, it's one of the reasons I've adopted a certain way of talking about Peterson that, that sort of reflects a wee bit of the nuance that you sort of began with. It's just because uh, when we have a public-facing role in the society and we kind of think that maybe some people might be better experiencing less of a certain ideology and maybe should come over to our way of thinking, I think part of the way of doing that is to acknowledge some of the things that people find useful about a certain idea or thing mm -hmm. that they're interested in. And I, I, I carry that into my analysis of capitalism. I carry that into my analysis of, of even things like Brexit and all of that, you know, where my position is clear, but also I, I try to understand and pace the terrain of someone who views things differently. And, and actually, I think sometimes take, taking that um, emotionally... Uh, sensitive approach where it's appropriate is, 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 pretty, is a pretty good way of, of getting somebody to go, actually, aye, you know, there might be something in that because if you're, you're own, not fighting them, if you're own, opening, some people have to, you know, some people have to, and I think it's that diversity of approach that matters. But, but sometimes uh, what you're trying to do is you're trying to persuade someone, you're trying to get someone to listen to you, you're trying to get someone to, to change their ideas. No one does those things under the duress of criticism or stress. So exactly. even just the emotional reality of how do you make a person uh, neu neurologically uh, susceptible to changing an idea, you have to create an emotional environment which is, is, um, makes that possible. So it can't begin with, you're a fucking arsehole, because he's an arsehole, now fucking get over here and listen to me. Yeah, <laughs> you know? but one of the issues here then is quite a lot of these conversations are happening on the internet mm. and in particular, Twitter is an example. And in my podcast this week, I had a cyber psychologist on, and they were speaking about the impact of social media on the human brain and how we behave in social media. And when you're trying to have a difficult conversation like that online, where you're trying to get someone to empathize with you, the online social media space doesn't provide the forum for that to exist. Because having a conversation with someone online is a bit like being in a traffic jam and screaming in a pair of cars. Do you know what I mean? No one's ever going to have a nuanced conversation if they just had a fender bender. Yeah. But people, the example I use often is, do you know when you almost bump into someone on the street when you're walking? It, you never have a fight. Yes. You laugh and you go, ooh. Yeah. And that's a beautiful thing. But then yeah. in a car, then people are screaming and shouting. Yeah. Because the car provides us with it, the disinhibition effect, it's called. We feel that we're guarded and protected and we say whatever the fuck we want. Yes. There's no consequences. So it's also, it's also part to do with how we have evolved to communicate. So if this is the length of time that humans have been evolving, this is the length of time that we've been using language to communicate.
Oh. Right? And so there's a, there's a problem inherent to our communication software when we go on social media because we're inferring meaning from text a lot of the time. Yeah. Text that's arbitrarily limited, constrained in some way, according to whatever the, the social media gimmick of that platform is. And so... We, in order to kind of feel safe and secure in that environment, we jump to conclusions to, to derive a sense of meaning and a sense of righteousness that gives us that feeling of being part of our tribe. And, and, and I guess there might be some kind of quality to that in some instances for solidarity reasons. But in terms of just understanding the world, social media is a tremendous mirage because actually what it's good for is arranging to meet up in the real world to discuss what's going on. And, 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 and information digest, that's really good. But it it's actually leaves us feeling less connected, less understood, and more confused, even though we use it for the opposite of all of those reasons. Absolutely. Okay, thank you there to Darren McGarvey for that fantastic, insightful interview. Check out his book, The Social Distance Between Us. Keep your ears and eyes peeled for his upcoming UK tour. This is the final instalment from underneath my continental quilt in this hotel room. I'm going to be back next week and I'll be back in my studio or my office with a properly recorded hot take for all of you. I have some stuff planned, alright? I'm going to bid you farewell. Rub a dog. Make eye contact with a swan. Brush the hair on a weasel's tail and I'll catch you next week. I have to go for the extended ASMR kisses there because I have the, the stereo microphone. Dog bless go fuck says. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.